What's up, what's up, what's up? We're back. I'm back like a rebel making trouble. I'm an assassin kicking ass on the devil. Oh, I, I could just flow. Sometimes I really wish I would have been an MC, just like a hip-hop master, like Too Short, Eminem, Lil Wayne. I love country music. I love rock. I love classic rock. I like Andrea Bocelli and Luciano Pavarotti, the three tenors, opera music. I like Liga Bue, a big rock band in Italy. I like music from all over the place. And I love hip-hop. I like R&B, Jodeci, Boys the Men, Keith Sweat. I mean, there's just so much good music out there. Bruno Mars, the master, the one and only, the best of all time, Michael Jackson, Prince. I mean, come on. Be diversified. I love outlaw country. I'm not big on the new country. Some of it's okay. But I like Brent Cobb, Leith Lofton. Cody Jinks and Cody Johnson and Adam Hood, so many more. Just check out the Foul Life playlist on Apple Music. Chris Knight from Kentucky. What's up with Rural Route? Listen to that song and tell me it don't make you cry. Or listen to Shine On Rainy Day by Brent Cobb. Drake White's awesome. Whiskey Myers, Travis Tritt, Chris Stapleton. Don't get me wrong, there's some good music on the radio. I like some of it. I love John Party. I like our boy Riley Green, Dylan Carmichael, Michael Ray. They're out there. Just check them out on the Foul Life playlist. Today's episode of the Foul Life podcast, Dickies Workwear podcast series. Thank you, Dickies, for believing in us, our brands, the culture, the fabric of our communities, our every just overall society. We got to work. We were put on this earth to work, and that's what Dickies believes in. And you talk about reinventing themselves and just revolutionizing their entire offering and line of workwear and lifestyle wear. It is badass. Trust me, we've been wearing it for the last 18 months and we're workers. I hope you understand that. We work hard. We play hard. We love hard. We're out there. Like Riley Green says, we out there. And today's part two with another guy that's out there. We talked about part of his career as a salmon guide on the Kenai River in Alaska for five and a half, six months out of the year. You know he's married to a beautiful artist named Allie Beck, at Allie Beck Stanley on Instagram. You got to check out some of her artwork. He's got kids. He's had a newborn. He's raising his kids that Allie had in a previous marriage. This guy is salt of the earth. His dad taught me a lot of what I know about duck hunting, waterfowl hunting, fly fishing. John David Stanley is back, and today we're going to talk about his other career that he does for the other part of the year, the other half of the year. Guiding goose and duck hunts at Ranger Creek Outfitters. Ranger Creek what? Guide service? Ranger Creek Goose. Ranger Creek Goose. That's over there in Haskell County, Texas, right? Mm-hmm. If you guys are big Foul Life fans, you probably know how much admiration we have for Phil Robertson and Jace and Willie and Red Dog and Uncle Cy and everybody, Justin Martin, everybody at Duck Commander. Well, back in the day before Duck Dynasty became a super hit, even before... Duck Commander, Benelli's Duck Commander was on the Outdoor Channel. They had a DVD series. The Duckman Part 1 with Warren Coco from Go Devil Motors in Louisiana is the best waterfowl DVD, hunting DVD ever made. It's awesome. He went for the bucks. I went for the ducks. A lot of people don't know that Phil Robertson started over Terry Bradshaw at Law Tech University as quarterback. But where I'm going with this is Haskell County is where Benny Prince was from. 
And that's where they filmed a lot of those DVDs on all those potholes in Texas, killing those widgeons and those mallards. And they made it look so easy just because they're good. Salt of the earth people. Big inspiration to us. Thank you, Phil and crew. Miss Kay. I loved my time that I got to spend with y'all. I can't wait to see you guys again. But that's where John David makes half of his yearly income is in Texas at Ranger Creek Goose. So a goose guide. Mm-hmm. We ended the podcast the other day, and I asked you to think about the pressures. Do you feel pressure? Do you put so much pressure on yourself? Or do you just have it set like, hey, my client list is it is what it is? Or do you get those people in camp that like – that you know they expect the limit every day and if they're not shooting it's not worth their time when i was guiding i told you man sometimes i felt like i needed to refund their money but you can't do that as a guide or an outfitter or you're going to go broke so how do you balance all of that with not letting the pressure get to you well i mean it that's that's a solid question and and to say that i don't feel pressure would be inaccurate because i put more pressure on myself than anybody than any hunter could um but the other side of that is I no, I don't feel the only pressure I feel is from myself and, and I'm comfortable with that. No matter the outcome of the, the hunt or the fishing trip, whatever I've done this long enough. Now I know I'm leaving everything I got out there on the table. I'm nothing's half-assed. Like I give it no, I tell people this in my boat, just like I do in my hunting groups. Nobody in any of my parties, fishing or hunting, wants them worse than I do. It's not possible. Like, so I'm I'm comfortable enough with, I know the amount of effort that I put in and work that I put in, that I'm giving them the best opportunity I possibly can, regardless of the outcome. And, and you know, the clients that I have now and have had for a long time, they know that. Well, give me an idea... And I love what you're saying, J.D., but give me an idea of where a guide can go wrong. What are some of the things that you're in your mind thinking about right now, the corners that you don't cut? Do you hide the blind perfectly every day? Do you wake up and get out there in plenty of time to make sure that the ground blinds are concealed the right way? Yes. If you're in pitch, you make sure that the pit covers are – like, is that the things you're talking about, that you you put the, the client that's paying his or her mm-hmm. hard-earned money to come visit you and hunt, you put them in the best position possible – to have, you don't have to even call it the hunt of a lifetime, but to have a memorable have morning success. or afternoon, have success and create memories. Mm-hmm. So that's what you're saying is that a good a good guide, there's no there's no downtime during the season. If you're not hunting, you're scouting. If you're not scouting, you're doing something to make that next day's hunt worthwhile, right? Yep, always. You know, it, it, it never stops. It's not um, just as simple as, you know, you just go hunting in the morning and then tomorrow you go again. Like, I don't stop. Like, I... I I, I make sure I get to the fields early. I make sure that it's way because it, it, that's the only thing I can control every day is being on time. You've been there. I've been there. We've all been there at times in our lives where we were running late, whatever. It, 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 it never turns out well if, if you're setting up decoys while birds are flying. It just doesn't. That never has a positive outcome, right? Because it's missed opportunities. So I would much rather be set up 40 minutes before shooting time and hanging out and socializing with the with my hunters rather than rushing to try to get everything set up and all the trucks parked and everything while the geese are flying. 
So that's that's one of the things that I control. The other thing, yeah, hiding. Hiding's, you know, I mean, you know it just as well as I do. It's everything. Um, you know, making sure that most people that have hunted with me or have worked with me, whatever, would all tell you that I'm super anal about the way the decoys get set up. Because, and it's not that I do the same thing every day, but I already know, I know what I want it to look like to get the birds to do what I need them to do. I've just done it enough. Like I like, it, you know, it's, I have, I have my spreads, the, my ideas, what I'm, that I pull from all the time, my playbook, so to speak. And so you give me this weather, this wind, this light, certain fields hunt better in certain winds you know just like anywhere like i already have a game plan for that it's not like i'm trying to figure it out when i show up there like i've already thought about it because i know where i'm hunting the night before because i scout so i'm already developing what i'm gonna do before i go to bed so then when i get up it's easy i just go there and put in the work and get it done but the the where guides could go wrong is that sometimes you rely on your talent too much or thinking that you got it whipped for the most part and you leave out some of those key elements of being a waterfowl guide or so, any guide. So you can't, you can't leave anything out. You got a checklist every morning, right? Right. So there's, there's, there's two things that you can get caught up in. A, it's being stagnant and not changing what you're doing and just doing the same thing every day, same spread, same setup everything every day different fields i i see it happen a lot with other outfitters that and and all all over in places that i've worked you know they do good for a while and then those birds get conditioned to what the program is and they still run the same play don't don't get stuck in that like don't be afraid to try something different whether it be a bigger spread, smaller spread, spread the decoys out, tighten them up, you know, there's edge hunt versus hunting in the middle of the field. Like there's a lot of things you can do to diversify your attack. And I see people get stuck in this one dimensional style of hunting. And I would say that's probably the biggest mistake. The other one is, and I don't know if you've noticed it, it's kind of a pet peeve of mine. It, it the the average goose guide now is not the goose call operator that goose guides were 15 years ago they learn how to make a lot of noise and that's all they do like overcalling is a huge problem everywhere i think in my personal opinion i agree you know it had a lot to do with the internet yep well, it's so much easier to learn you know, well, not learn the right way though. It's easy to get a just an idea of it, but to sit with a Tim Grounds or a Fred Zink at a show, like they used to be so you know readily available at our fingertips to go to a a show or something, you could pick the brain and hear a goose call. You can't even really hear the pitch and the tone of a goose call on a video. No, on the internet. No, and it's not. It's and not. It accurate. doesn't teach how to present the air for sure. No, it doesn't. But you get the sounds, and then. You try to copy them instead of the way, you know, we learned. We grew up here in northern Nevada. There was no goose hunters here no. to mount anything. Definitely no goose callers. None. When I started goose calling, 
I started going to contests and getting my ass handed to me. But that was how I learned. I got to listen to Bill Saunders, Kelly Powers, like, because I started contest calling in 90, what, 97, 96? Yep. Somewhere in there. That's when I started, it was 98. Yeah. But we and used to, you know. I beat your ass in the Nevada State Duck Calling Championships. Only because I blew over the light. I was only 20 it's points ahead. Still an ahead. ass whipping. Well, you know. Nobody in Stuttgart knew that you were 20 points ahead going into that last round. No. But, yeah, that's the thing is that you, you, you but, don't. But, but that's how we learned. We went to contests and got our teeth kicked in. Yeah, you came up like, in the honky-tonks. And now it's like you just have to watch a video. And, and I want everybody hunting. If it's legal and ethical, I, I want too. hunting. It's awesome. But I would, that would if, if I could give any advice to young guides or people that want to get into guiding, it would be really become proficient at the craft of blowing a call. I think that and it's funny that you say that because here's the two things that I concentrated on in guiding because you can't control the birds. You can't control right. the nature. As long as you put yourself and your hunters in a position, here's the three things that I concentrated on. First and foremost, I wanted my group to know what safety meant. Yep. And that's one of my pet peeves or my anxiety pushes, button pushers was you're hunting with strangers every day. Mm -hmm. When I'm hunting with you or your dad, I know where your guns are. I know what you're thinking. I know what you're getting ready to call the shot, or you know when I'm getting ready. I know what note to make after you make it. You get comfortable with a hunt group. Yep. But when you're with strangers every day, and the excitement level, the anticipation, I've seen too many mistakes, man. I'm not going to lose my life for somebody to get to shoot a goose because they were so fired up to push the safety button off at the wrong time yeah. or there or just had it off or just had it off. So yeah. that was one of my pet peeves. Yep. The other thing that I really wanted to concentrate on was conversing in conversation, storytelling, comfort level, camaraderie, cutting up, joking, personality, easy to get along with, made them feel like we just met, but we're best friends. And that's what hunting's good for yep. more so than golf. When I golf, I don't become best friends because I'm so competitive, but I also am so shitty. I'm having a bad day because I can't right, hit the ball. Right, but you're focused. It, it, yeah. It's you're a, focused it, on competing. You're, and you're, you're focused on making a good swing instead yeah. of comfortable, the whole comfortable with the whole what day. your athletic And if I make a bad one and I'm in the cart, I'm pissed off. Right. If I make a good one, now I'm clinched up going, oh, I got to make my good. Now I got to get a good five iron. Then I got to get a good putter or a good yep. pitching wedge, right? And hunting, if you see the birds or hear them, that's when I go into focus shoot the birds, dog brings them back, and then it's high five, and then it's right back to cutting up, yep. cooking breakfast, whatever. So I always wanted to be good at the conversing part of it to make everybody feel like, holy shit, that was a great day in the blind. We're all buddies. Mm -hmm. Not just some stiff down there blowing a call. And I've been around guides like this that you're like, Jesus, cry me, dude. I don't care that you can blow a goose call. This is not fun. Right. You know, you're like, oh, no. And then the third part was calling. And the reason that calling is so important is that one, it's an icebreaker. Two, it can become very impressive. It can become a point of where your got your clients are like, this is unreal. We've never heard calling like that. And I'm not saying that I was an unbelievable caller. I'm saying that I was good enough to get people's attention like, holy smokes. And then on top of that, I was always the one that would say, get your call out. Let's practice. Get your kids call out where a lot of people are like, hey, I don't, we don't need that today. I'll do all the calling today, right? Mm -hmm. I understand me as the guide. I'm going to call the shot. No ifs, ands, or buts. If you get up and shoot before I say it, it's going to be a bad day. Yep. Um, but calling is that thing that really makes everybody go, man, this is where I need to be. Because if you're just, if they're coming in the decoys and, and, and you kill a group that, and, and it happens, you're not paying attention. Here comes a mallard or a goose, bam. 
But those geese that are going left to right out there at 600 yards and you get on your call and you turn them, your clients are like, but if you don't know how to call and you just let them go by, your clients are like, what the hell? Mm -hmm. And then you got to flag and you got to have your decoy set. So being prepared and being a good communicator, a good speaker of the jargon, a good vocalizer of the Canadian goose vocabulary or mallard duck or specs or whatever, it's a big deal to clients to know that they're confident in you or that you, you know, that they can have confidence in you that you've you've honed your skills. And then that's what gets the repeat business. That's what should get the repeat business because you're not going to kill a limit every day. No, the, the, you're, you're 100% right. And, and, you know, when I started guiding 20 years ago, my dad was the one who told me, he's like, look, he goes, it's easy to be a guide when the hunting or fishing is good. He goes, great guides, customers have a good time when it's tough. You have to be an entertainer. Always. That's and exactly what I meant. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've, I've said that, you know, probably for the last 10 years that me personally, I enjoy, I enjoy the hunting with my clients in Texas, for example, but I go over and eat dinner with them. My family invite my family to dinner and they cook and we go eat with them every night. Like they're family, they're friends, you know, it's, it's that camaraderie. It's hunting camp. Like, and, and that's, that's that to them and the clientele that I and we have down there now, that's the most important thing 100%. is the hunting camp. Yeah. The hunting is great and we have a good time and we kill a lot of geese. Those guys come to hang out with us. It, but here, when you're, when you're on this subject, I want to make sure that people understand that there's also there, there's also the, the other side of this argument or, or conversation is that I want clean sheets. I want to- fresh rolls of toilet paper. I want clean sinks. I don't want to yep. go in there. The last group just left, and I'm seeing toothpaste dried up in the deal. I want to open the cupboard or the pantry and see bottled water in the, yeah, there ready for my blind bags. I want to see sodas. I want to see uh, a lodge that has been well taken care of. But on the other hand, <clears throat> I want to make sure that my clientele knows, and I'm sure you and Jeremy are like, is it Jeremy? No, Justin. Justin, I'm sorry. I just, I, I just was t- before I came in here and met with you today. I was on a phone call with a guy in Florida named Jeremy. <laughs> um, you don't want it to be so overboard to where there's ever the feeling that hey, th- these guys are really going above and beyond on making us feel like we're comfortable and like we're VIP red carpet, but the hunting sucks, right? right? You don't ever want to get to that point either because pulling the wool over no, people where like, it's the five star. Style Lodge, wine and dine. I went to Pintel Peninsula and when I first started going to Arkansas. Pintel Peninsula. And how Peninsula, was the hunting? It was the worst. They put me on a roadside ditch and these little green toolies. And I hadn't been in flooded timber yet. This yep. is back when I was first. I remember. I remember like, when you was, went there. This was in 2000, the first year I uh, qualified for Worlds when I whipped you. 2000 or 99. We go to Pintel Peninsula. 99. And they put. They had no trees. They had no woods. They, I don't even think they had a rice pit. They were, they put me in this thing, and the guy drops off a backpack full of cold Budweiser. I remember, I'm like, cold beer in a duck blind? Yeah. To clients that you don't even know? You don't, what if I'm underage? What if one of us is not, not even 20? It was the most bizarre thing, and we didn't, we, I think we killed one spoonie. Yep. We went back, and the ducks were on the porch, teal and a couple spoonies, go in, freaking million-dollar lodge, like out-of-the-world lodge, right? The lodge, the lodge is still there. I'm not going to say who the new owner is, but this place was called Pintel Peninsula. Yep, I remember and it. And it was the biggest hoax. I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And you went in there and you had arcades and really good food and they had no trees. They had, they were selling it based on their ability to make people feel comfortable only at the lodge. But when the hunt started, the hunters had no chance to be successful. Right. And it soon failed. Nope. You, and that, people do, will pick do, you apart that, with that. That happens everywhere now. Everywhere. You know, everybody's a guide now. And 
and and I don't I don't take that I'm not trying to take that away from anybody. Everybody should get to do what they want to do, but do it professionally. But don't give the guiding and outfitting business a bad name. No, don't. And you know, and I that mean, brings you to the legalities and the ethics of hunting. Yep. How far are you willing to go as an outfitter? Not you personally, but you ask yourself, how far are you willing to go to make this hunt legit? Some people go the extra illegal mile. Right, but what do you consider legit? Like legit as far as a number at the end of the day? Well, what, no, just the experience. Like you you might only kill five birds that day, but if you went the extra mile and everything that we've been discussing right now and your clients know, hey, the shit happens. We booked this hunt a year ago. It's yeah. a full moon. It's freaking 80 it's degrees and it should be 50. They're migratory. Yeah, you never know. But if you go the extra mile of what some outfitters have been busted for lately. Oh, yeah. That's giving the industry a bad name. That's giving everything has gray area. I get it. But if you are literally, I mean, I just heard a story just now, just two weeks ago, I was in Tennessee, 10 days ago, literally heard it verbatim. Oh yeah. We were, we were uh, still mad at him. So we dumped the ducks, you know, went back and shot another limit. And I'm like, part of me wants to be the guy that punches them and goes, what are you doing? But I don't want to, like, I can't do that. Like, right. I can't. I'm not trying to sound like I'm afraid of it, but I was like, I do tell people all the time, you got to be ethical. But when you get around people and they're all proud to tell you that they're an outlaw or they just went and they shot 40 dove on a 15-bird limit, it makes no sense. No. Nope. You're not going to eat that many. You can't be that mad at them. Go shoot sporting clays. And I understand, but there's a lot of people that have that analogy of like, man, last season sucked. I'm going to get mine now. And we can't do that. It's a black. Right. And that's, like they're, like they're going to make up for it in the aggregate. Yeah. Like, and, that, and that's what you have to educate your clients on, too, because one of the things that we touched on last time we were here on your on part one was, hey, where's your gun? Can we shoot your limit? Absolutely not. Nope. I want everybody to understand party hunting. You have your possession, your possession of ducks, your daily bag limit on a strap in front of you. You have to have your birds separated in the blind. Yep. Okay. When that, when that tally is counted and you have five birds on your strap and it's a six bird limit, you can kill one more, but your buddy next to you has six birds. He can't shoot the next flock, right? The guy next to him has six birds. He can't shoot the next flock. The guy next to him or the girl next to him only has four. She can stand up and shoot with you. And that's what I was always paying attention to. Okay. We got three birds left. Who's got the, the straps? You got eight, you got eight, whatever the limit was in Colorado. You could kill four geese a day or whatever, five geese a day yep. at one time. Who's got them in their pile? Boom, you can stand up and shoot. But a lot of times people make the mistake of the party hunting that you're five men in your group and you're two birds short of a five-man limit and all five people stand up and shoot again. And then what do you hear? That's it, that's it, we're done, we're done, we're done. No yeah. shit, we're done. You should have only had two people shooting one time each at one bird each. That's where people get. That's where people go wrong, right? Yeah, a lot of the time. I mean, for sure, and particularly in, in waterfowl, you know, I mean, it's... Well, where else do you party hunt? <laughs> but really, you, have right? to, you have to stay on top of it, like... As, as a guide, like you need to know where you are, you know, I don't let, I don't let hunters pick birds up and put them anywhere. I put them all behind each person, wherever they're laying. Well, let me ask blind. you this real quick on that like, subject. And I keep What everything. about a cripple? What's the law behind a cripple? You're the guide, you carry a gun, you go out to pick up the birds, your dog's bringing them back. There's one running off and you're not hunting that day. Whose kill is it actually if the guy dispatches a cripple that's from a getting away? That's a gray area. Gray area, right? Yep. Is it your kill because you killed him dead? And now that's but your see, bird right, on your right, license? Right, but see, but that's, okay, so it could be mine. Because I don't have any. But the ethics of hunting is you don't want to lose that bird. 
So you're going to shoot right, them dead. But it's no different. And you don't than, want them crippled. It's no different than you know birds that sail or whatever. Like those count towards the limit. If your dog can't find it and they get away, sure. Yep. If I know it where it went down, and my dog didn't find it, like it still counts. You have to like, make an even, effort to even go. Even though get it. I made an effort to go get it, I count them. You have to count. Because it's not worth it. Every client needs to realize that when you're working with yep. an outfitter guide, that bird counts. And it's and honestly, when you're hunting like you have and do, when you get into larger groups, it's generally a good idea to stop short. Always stop short. Because you're going to find some. What is what is the whole the whole thing is the picture at the end? Nobody's going to tell that you're three birds short. No. You're not. Now, I've had days where we stack them up. We, I have days where we have eight guys in there in Kansas, and we kill all eight limits of, of, of lessers. Right. I've done it. Not if, I don't, I'm unapologetic about it. I'll go home and cook right. them all that day and make pulled goose sandwiches or mallard duck something and eat them and go back and kill more the next day. That's legal. Right. You got to, your possession limit, your daily bag limit, all of that process. What does it mean to have it in your freezer? Where is it back when you get to your, your lodge or wherever? When are you, you know, off of the transportation part of it? And now the birds don't have to be tagged anymore. You can go in and clean them and breast. Like there's all these laws. There's all these gray areas in waterfowl hunting. And it's one of the most intimidating factors of why there's not as many waterfowl hunters, along with the weather, along with the expense, and especially along with the knowledge you have to have to be yeah. consistently successful. But, but I mean, it's the hardest. Is this not the hardest hunting there is? I'm not saying that going 14,000 feet for no, a no, stone no. sheet. As, as far as knowing regulations, yes, without a doubt. I Not mean, just regulations. But, but I mean, I mean, you got to okay. identify birds. Uh, okay, okay, right, but that's what I'm talking you gotta about. you got to be a good that's shotgunner. I'm, ta- that I'm including that as regulations. you got to be like, a caller. Right, but you take, you know, the Pacific Flyway here, right? We get, what, 14 different species of ducks, some of which you can shoot one of, some of which is two, hard. some hard. of which is three. And then, a hen redhead then, looks like a gadwall. Uh, yeah, hen I've re- had, I've uh, had how about ga- a hen redhead and a hen ringneck. I've had gate like, wardens go, "Hey, um, you got two redheads there." I'm like, "No, those are gadwalls." Right. Like they don't even know how to identify no, them when they're dead. I, I got, I got, an, I was, it was funny. I was banding when I was banding birds with a biologist um, in Nevada back when I was a kid. We banded birds like a week before the season, two weeks before the season, and went up. We were just driving around the wildlife area at Stillwater, and the game wardens were there, and these guys were coming in, and the guy's like, yeah, I got a banded duck. And the game warden that was there, he was an older guy. They had moved him here to retire, and he was going to write this guy a ticket for having too many redheads because he had three, or he thought he had three. And, I mean, he's got the book out, right? Yeah. And he's telling him that this banded bird is a redhead. It was a gadwall. And, I, and I, I walked up to him and like, I, and I was 16, like, and I was like, sir, like it has yellow feet. It's, it's a gadwall. It's redheads have gray feet. Like, look at where the wing patch is. Look at this, you know, it's, but it's, yeah, it's super intimidating to get into. And it, it, it makes me worried for the sport. Like, there's just so much regulation on it that why would you want to get it? And into then it? you got state and then federal, and those are different in right. a lot of areas. So now what you think you're doing right in the state, they could. There's different federal laws that trump those laws, and that's what's crazy about waterfowl hunting is you're dealing with a federal migratory bird. You don't do that in deer hunting, right? Coyote hunting, turkey hunting. You're dealing with something that the federal government has their eyes on too, right? So now you start talking about well, it's like take for example pintails and and uh, canvasbacks, right? They're both federally regulated. 
Yep. Not state to state. Okay. You limit, you mean. Right. So you shoot too many canvas backs and it's a federal issue. It's not a state because they're federally managed. Like it's, yeah, I mean, it's intimidating to say the least. Um, but here's where I'm going with this. All of that line of questioning about the legalities, okay, and the mm -hmm. intimidation factor, because it's hard. And then on top of that, it's not easy. Even when you think you got it whipped and you know when the legal shooting hours is and you know right. how to identify a bird on the wing. And okay. now you got all of the different things from dogs to decoys, the jerk lines, the motion, to ripples, to sunshine and right. cloudy days. And when do I go? And what time of the day do I go? And what's the full moon going to do to him? And what's the barometric pressure going to do to him? And then on top of that, you got all the calling. You got all of the scouting. You have all of the preparation of where do I set up on this water? And then you got all the concealment part of it. A lot of things you can say like this, look, I want to go kill a deer. I go get in a box blind with an orange vest on and a rifle, and there's going to be a doe that walks out, and I'm a smacker tonight. And there's going to be a little button buck that walks out, and I'm going to have my little my daughter shoot at him. Right. And duck hunting, I'm just saying, I'm not saying that we're the best hunters in the world. Please don't take that. Even though we're the smartest, and deer hunters are the weirdest, They, <laughs> it's, it's, in my opinion, the hardest form of hunting, all-around hunting there is, in my opinion. Now, do you have to be in better shape? To be a, a sheep hunter and a sheep guide, hell yes. And to find them an illegal ram, yes. But all of these pieces of this waterfowl puzzle, and I'm telling you, if you're not in shape as a waterfowl hunting, hunter, you're doing yourself a disjust, an injustice. Going and picking up four big honkers in both hands, and that's four times, let's say 12. You have 48 pounds, and now you're on uneven cornfield ground and big old freaking mud boots, and you're trying to run back with your dog full. He's got a mouthful, and you're running back because there's another incoming flock, and you got to get them in behind each hunter. Then you got to get down, and then you got to get your call up, and you're like, and you're out of breath, and you're like, oh my God, my lungs are burning. It's better to be in shape for all of it. So this waterfowl game is tough, and it's better to be in shape and prepared, but where I was going with all of that is back to what you do for a living. You're a mentor as much as you are a guide. These clients are looking at you to help them understand all these rules. They might, that you're their pro. You're their end all. You got Sean Mann coming, right? Yeah. Sean Mann's one of the best people I've ever met in this industry. Sean Mann is looked at as the end all. In short read goose calling, flute goose calling, the Eastern Shoreman call, Josh Newweiler and everything that they did in Easton and all the world titles these guys won. I think Josh won it like three years in a row or something. And he won the champion of champions. Yep. Before Josh, he was like Josh 25 won, years yeah, old. Yeah, Josh won three juniors, three worlds in the champion of champions. One of the best. He's and probably the, a, is he the best then, of all time in Easton? world live goose. I know Hunter's considered the best goose caller of all time. But is he the best world goose calling champion of all time? Nobody can compare with New those stats. Can anybody compare to that? Um... No, but there also wasn't as many people in it. Like, it's all relative, right? Like, that's like the argument of, you know, who would win now in golf? You know, Bobby Jones, Jack Nicklaus, and Tiger Woods all at their peak. Like, who would win? Tiger Woods. Right, because he's an athlete. But, but... But how do you know that for sure, right? Like, I mean, Tiger still hasn't but beat here, Jack. Here, record, here's but my thing: is that it's not the same because because you got to make the but it's relative you, to the competition. You got to make the hole in the ball. The with Gus with Goose calling, you got five judges back there that don't know who the hell's up there. That's true. So he's doing this six times, seven times. He wins the championship in Easton, and I would bet that there was never one time that the judging panel was all the same five judges. No. So um, he's impressing that many different judges. Hunter's a badass. Kelly Powers, all these guys are awesome. Yeah, I mean, I think as far, like, you want to talk about just 
Who's the greatest N- NBA basketball player of all time? Jordan. Six or five jo- or six world championships? Jo- Jordan or Kobe? No. Either Jordan one is a winner. He won six Kobe championships. Kobe was a worker, though. It Kobe. doesn't matter. Kobe would tell you that Jordan's the best. He wanted the ball at the end of the game every time, and he won six right, rings. But who's the, okay, so who was the best boxer of all time? Mike Tyson, heavyweight champion. He was undisputed at Better 19 than years Ollie. old. Yes. He was 19 years old, the undisputed champion of the world. Right. Now, did he, was he, did he do it right in his career? No. It's the, I talk about it on the podcast all the time. No, he has but the what, weirdest what, career of all really time. Really, what boxer has at, done it right? Head-to-head, Mike Tyson knocks out Muhammad Ali. If he, in his ca- prime. if he could catch him. In both of their primes. If he could catch him. Mike Tyson was quick, too, and he hit harder than any human being. George Foreman hit pretty hard. There's, but there's interviews with that, but what right? I'm saying but is like that Mike Tyson says, you have to bow your head to the greatest, and he's sitting there with Muhammad Ali, and he goes, he'd whip my ass. 100%, just like when Billy Gibbons, well, just like when G- Jimi Hendrix was on The Tonight Show. Right. And they said, hey, what's it feel like to be the best guitar player in the world? And he looks at him, and he goes, I don't know. You need to call Billy Gibbons in Texas and ask him. Yeah. ZZ Top, Billy Gibbons. Right, but it's, it's, a, it's a mutual respect, but... I think, yeah, Josh probably was one of the best. How can I you mean, argue with seven world titles? Nobody's done that. How many did Hunter win as a junior? You won three. the junior. He won Hunter, three junior? Hunter won three. Hunter won the juniors and the men's in the same year. Same year. But did he, he didn't win three juniors, did yeah. he? Did he win three men's? Yep. It's, it's, the only one he hasn't won is the champion champions. Right. So if he wins that, I'm going to put him as the greatest. because. But Josh Neuweiler sounds but, like freaking Canada Geese. But so here's, here's another one that hasn't that doesn't get mentioned a lot, not near as much as he should. Robbie Iverson yeah. is without a doubt. He and Hunter, in my opinion, are the – and I'll add one more. Wade Walling were the t- or the my top three contest Same callers again? of all time. Hunter, Robbie Iverson – and Wade Walling. Um, Wade blew GK calls. He came out here to Reno. I know Wade Walling is. Um, Robbie. I don't think Robbie ever came out here, but Robbie's... I don't remember if Robbie won a juniors. I know Robbie won three worlds, and then he won the champion of champions. And he's won every big goose calling contest other than that that there is multiple times. Robbie will be in the champion of champions. Robbie's done. Probably at, won the champion champions. At 22 years old. Wow. Like, and, I he, still and think. he, but, but, but you got to think like, like, cause I have the old videos and yeah, Josh is insane. Josh is, he makes unbelievable sounds on a goose call. We'll never dispute that. But I would venture to say that Josh would also say that the amount of competition that was around then when he was winning versus people like Hunter, Forrest Carpenter. I I don't think there was as many good callers. You had Powers, and and this is 98, 99, 2000. Kelly didn't win until 99 and 2000. Josh was already done. At 2000, no. No way. No freaking way. Look it up. Look up the last year he won a Worlds. Let's see. This is where we need one of those Because I can tell you, 99 was Kelly. 2000 was Sean Mann. 2001 was was Kevin Popo. Kelly was champion of champions in 2002. 2002 was Kevin Popo. 2003. No, wait. Neuweiler was in the 2000s. I wasn't even in competition. I was. Because I won the Junior Worlds in 01. Contest history. Here it is. You ready? Yeah. I can't remember who won in 03. 
2000, 2019, Kyle Jones. 18, Kyle Jones. 17, Shanahan. Yep. 15, Shanahan. One, or I mean 16, Shanahan. 15, R.J. Dick. 14, Robbie Iverson. Mm-hmm. 13, Hudnall. 12, Iverson. 11, Mitch Hughes. 10, Mitch Hughes. 2009, Robbie Iverson. Holy shit, he won it three times. Yeah. I didn't know that. Ooh, I don't know. I, I got to, I'm going to eat my words. Um, 2011, Mitch Hughes. No, I said that already. Yeah. Mitch Hughes, Robbie Iverson. Eight, Wade Walling. Yeah. 700 grounds. Six, Mitch Hughes. 500 grounds. Four, Field Hudnall. 300 grounds. Two, Popo. One, Popo. You're right. Sean Stahl, 2000. Yep. That's why I said. Kelly Powers, 99. John Taylor, 98. 97, Newweiler. 96, Newweiler. 95, Newweiler. He won yep. it three years in a row. So he was done. But, but he, he was, t- but So here's that, the guys that he had. He had Tim Grounds. But, but that was right at the transition of short reads taking over contests. Okay, John David's right. I eat my words. It's Josh is still one of the greatest in Easton. Without a doubt. But Sean Mann's there. He's won several championships. Tim Grounds won it three times. Yeah. Tim's a three-time world champion. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. 94, 92, and, ni- and 88. Mm-hmm. But once you get back to like pre, I mean, pre-99, I think every, 98 for sure. 98 was Taylor. Um, you know, I'm pretty sure all of them were won with flutes. Yeah, um, Tim's guide's best. Yep. I think that Kelly Kelly was the first one to win on a short read in 99. No, John Taylor won on a J.J. Lairs. He did? In 98, yep. For yep. sure. I guarantee it. Fred Zink told me on this podcast Kelly was the first one to win with a short read. John Taylor won. I think Freddie told me that. How do we get onto this? All I'm saying is that your clients and you as a guide, they look up to you as more than just to get them geese that day. So as a guide, you got to keep that in mind. You're a mentor, mm-hmm. you're a teacher, you're an educator. You got to be a good steward of this of the land. Pick up what you leave. Leave all, get all the holes picked up. Get all the garbage. Rake the weeds back in order. If you use a tree line, don't cut things down unless you have the farmer's permission. There's all sorts of ethical things that go in to waterfowl hunting and hunting as a whole. And as a guide, you're there to help teach. And that's what you got to keep in mind is that that personality. That entertainment value, all of that is first above the killing of the geese. Then you mix it with your ability to blow a goose call and edge and, and talk with them and, and cut up with them and make them laugh. You got to fill them out, right? I got to get to know these guys. Do they cuss? Right. Do you they have all different groups? You know, they're all different. You, uh, you have to be what you call a chameleon. Mm-hmm. You have to be able to adapt with what you have. Hey, this guy's a little bit older. His knees are a little bit bad. I got to call the shallow. I'm going to get, I'm going to make sure that he's right, in a that's different That's the position. other thing is then you have to learn that side of it as a guide is like, so I call the shot when I want them to shoot. If they could shoot at the speed that I sit up and shoot, right? Yep. And the geese blow over the line and the couple get shot. Half the guys don't get up. So it's like you got to make mental notes constantly. Like I got to call it a second and a half earlier than I normally would. Because by the time these guys get sat up, the geese will be where they're supposed to be. 100%. You know? And you're anticipating But that's hard. And then you add wind to it. It's hard. Because you know, just as well as I do, in a hard wind, like, 
Your, first, thing sh- I don't your li- first shot is the only one that's really going to count. And one thing that I don't like in this situation that some guides have I've seen do, and 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 I've never, I don't think I've ever been guilty of this. I've done it as far as some birds come in and I let them light because I know I'm about to finish the wad. But I don't like in those high wind situations because a lot of times you're like, let's just land them, and when they get up, let's just put a hole. I don't like that. That's where mistakes start to happen. That's when too many geese die. There's too many BBs being spread out throughout the flock. Yep. I like getting them tight and letting them back flap and knowing that, hey, they're going to have to get this much momentum going back up and you're going to have a shot. But when the wind's high, all they got to do is stop flapping their wings and they're freaking gone. So you got to call that shot. There's a lot of things that go in to being a successful guide and getting consistent results. And what we started with was that wall of sound and everybody just going out there and thinking that that's what it is. It's not it. It's the mad Indian dude. I don't like that. I don't like that at all. It's, and it's just, yeah, but it's, it's frustrating to me that, you know, I mean, I guess I took it a lot more seriously than most people do the calling side of things and mastering my, craft but well yeah but you're also considered one of the best all-around game callers of all time oh, you, i don't duck know calling about that, goose calling but... turkey oh yeah you are like there you can call anything right but so i think that you have to it just depends on how because i don't know how many times i've met duck hunters that are like oh i just let him call oh yeah i go with him because he calls shit i could never do it right i could never go duck hunting or goose hunting or coyote hunting or turkey hunting if i'm not i'm not saying i got to be the only one calling but if i'm not in the mix right but that's part of what got us into it yeah yeah but is, a lot of people is, don't give a shit about talking it. to them a lot of people don't give a shit about no it. they don't and 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 it's you know that that's a hard that's a hard place for a position to put a guide in is you get guys that want to bring their calls and blow their calls so Generally, I mean, we don't mix groups. We have exclusive groups. That's it. Mixing groups is just a recipe for disaster. 100%. Because you get different personality types. And then you're dealing with a two groups of guys that might not like each other, that all have loaded firearms that you've never hunted with. Like, it's just it's just a bad situation. Too much. Um, but, you know, that's, that's a hard place. Like, because A... First off, you say, yeah, you can call. Well, then they're affecting the success of a hunt that's going to fall on my shoulders. Then I'm the bad guy because I have to tell them to stop. Yep. So that's why I think you see a lot of guides just say, I'm going to do the calling because it's easier to it's easier to stop it before it starts than to stop it after it starts. And, I, and, and there's times, you know, and then and I'll give most everybody a chance. Well, that's the thing is that it, right? it should be but, known but the by way, the, But the way I go about it is maybe not directly go after them, but whoever's sitting next to me, because I'll never have a caller sit right next to me. Because I think, and this is this is another lesson for younger hunters, guides, hunters across the board. Don't play follow the leader. No. Like, it's not how if I'm making this sound. sound on a goose call, don't try to make that same don't sound. Don't do a humanistic Partic- rhythm. Particularly if you're not, capable of making that sound so this is but a good even lesson. with even with good goose callers me and you me and you duck calling whatever bouncing off of each other but make it sound real don't just be going in a loop where you hit them no. to spin them back around with a comeback call and then i hit them and that's where you get jim ronquist told me this he goes that's where you get the pulley effect and the the lead guy's pulling them and the guy who follows him with the same sound starts pushing them yeah and that's why you'll see those birds they'll they'll want to turn want to turn the sound didn't stop. Nope. So they can't. They don't know when. It doesn't sound right. 
you know, and, that's, and, that's it's, and, good... it's, and it's probably crazy for people to think, and some people probably think we're crazy that we are. We could have that much control over a bird, but you do when you get it right. Like you can. Ask, well, this is a great lesson for clients to know that if you think you're proficient on a call, do what but you you're are good at. But if you're if you're if you're booking a hunt with an outfitter, mm-hmm. don't go in there and put your lanyard on like you're the guide. Right. Go in there and respect the rest of the group and let the outfitter do see. Now, if he says, hey, go ahead and call, but I want you to do this. Don't follow me like this. And you educate him. But don't go in there and just start wailing on your call because you've been looking forward to this hunt forever and you want to go in there and show your skills. You're still with a guide. You've booked this hunt for a reason. Right. Go in there and let the guide do his job and respect that. Okay, that's like going into Emerald's Restaurant in Louisiana and me just jumping back there and throwing down on some freaking halibut with him. No, he's Emerald freaking Lagazi, right? Right. You don't just do it. Even though I know how to cook halibut, I'm going to let him do it tonight. That's why I visit his establishment. Exactly. The duck blind and the goose blind is John David's establishment. Let him do the cooking. Exactly. And if he invites you in there, if Emerald goes, hey, Chad, saw you on that provider commercial. Come, Come back here. Flip that halibut. No, not like that, you dipshit. Like, that's what he would say. Right, like, but, don't, but don't show up in someone else's office and tell them. Yeah. And dictate if you're invited in, go in there and show them. But don't try 100%. to become that guy that's trying to prove yourself or that girl that's trying to prove yourself. Go in there and just enjoy the hunt. I I I actually do not enjoy duck hunts where I don't get to blow a duck call. Right. So I'm I'm very I'm I'm the guy that's gonna be the one, oh, I want to blow the call, I want to blow the call. But I will not go into a situation and be like, I'm running my dog today. I'm doing the calling today when I'm in another man's hole. No. That's just and Tony Vandemore said it great on the podcast one day. Hey. Respect where you're at. If it's your deal, it's your rules. If you're, if it's not your rules, if it's not house rules on your pool table, and Clay says, hey, if you knock the eight ball in on the break, you win. And then Clint goes, no, this is my house. If you knock it in on the break, you lose still. You go with whose house rules they are. Right. You can't argue the house rules. That's right. And so there's there's different ways to respect all the different parts of this. Guiding is tough. And I and then you think about how long you guide, and you're there from May in Alaska from May until October, then you're in Texas. Then you might be like, hey, dude, I'm going up to Kansas and guiding snow goose hunts mm-hmm. all of March and April. And then turkey hunts. Yeah. And then this. And then that. You're crazy and shithouse rat, right? Like, that's nuts. Guiding is hard. And then there's the other part about it, and we're going to end it like this. The entertainment value of Duck and Goose Camp. I want you to give some advice to guides on the FOMO effect. If I go to bed now, I'm going to, I'm going to miss out on the, the great times at the campfire because clients will get there and they'll be ready to go. That's their vacation. Well, shit, I've already been here 30 days guiding. Every group wants to get me out there on the campfire and drinking beers. Discipline. There's nothing worse in the world than that alarm bell ringing and you having to get up. Or worse, someone else having to get you up. Get up and you miss that bell. If you miss that call, you're going to look like an idiot. If you don't feel good and you're setting up decoys and you're lethargic and you're cutting corners now. Right. So just be careful with all that. I think you're 100% right with that. Yes, socialize, party with clients, know the clients, A. But also understand, yes, they're your friends. Yes, you know. They're, they're there to party and have a good time with you, but there's still an expectation of you tomorrow morning. They are allowed to feel like shit. But here's the deal. I want to say but this They're allowed quick. to feel I, like shit, No, but shit, here, right? I want you to say this, though. I You're wanna, not. I, you I, still but, have to perform. But I want this to be known, too, and they owe it to the guide, the outfitting, and all of their hunting buddies. Mm-hmm. They, don't, they can't afford to feel like shit. That's when mistakes are made. That's true. If you wake up and you're not on your A game and you're taking the responsibility with a loaded weapon— 
You right, bet. I'm not talking like still falling down, but I'm talking hungover. I'm like, just talking but, about just, but, just keep that in mind though. That no, you're hundred percent Even when right. you're hungover, you're, you're not doing things like you're hungover and you're a carpenter and you're climbing up on a roof in a 90 degree day. What's you're happen? not performing the best day. You're not performing like you did when you weren't. That's right. You're going to fall off the roof. You're going to get heat exhaustion. You're going to be dehydrated. All of that shit. Well, and come and that, that comes back to the most important thing every day I go to work is that everybody comes back safe. That is more important than any number of birds 100%. or any amount the dog, of fish. The hunters, the everybody. If everybody comes back safe, it was a good day. One mistake can end your hunting career. Well, that's the thing, okay? Fishing, aside from life. getting hooked in the eye, it's going to heal. You're going to be okay, right? Well, I mean, you got to be but careful if I wreck, drowning. But if, but if yeah. I wreck the boat, but there's throw drowning, somebody out of the boat, there's somebody's going to drown, right? Somebody hits their hand in that prop. Right, but I'm just saying, just from the standpoint of injuries that are going to happen while fishing, Aside from catastrophic events, somebody might get hooked. I I get hooked every year, but it heals. The difference is, and this is something for the younger generations and newer hunters, when that shotgun or rifle, handgun, whatever it is, when it goes off, whatever it's pointed at is forever. Forever. There's no, there's no, I'm sorry. You know, you'll never forgive yourself. No. I mean, I've I've had I've had my share of close calls. And here's another thing, and we're it's there's another thing to keep in mind too, is you want to bring your own dog. You know, my my good buddy Drew Keith, president and CEO of Honeybreak, mm-hmm. they don't allow you to bring your dog to Honeybreak. You know why? Because their decoy spreads are massive. You know, you got to swim through. I mean, their dogs are top notch. Right, but what dogs are used to that? But what I'm saying me, is that I'm but, on the same. But page what I'm saying is that every client goes, "Well, my dog's a good duck hunter." Well, Drew is like. We want our dogs to go get these ducks and bring them right back and be ready for the next flock. Your dog's out there taking all these. I know that you want to bring your dog and you're a paying client, but they said, look, if you want, really want to bring your dog, you're going to pay a lot of extra. And then I started to realize, well, that's kind of effed up, but it's not. It's not because, look, because it's another. It's a it's, liability. It's a, it's a liability. And it can ruin the hunt in a way that it's, it's not a good experience for everybody else. Just because you think you got a good dog, you go hunt with Storm or one of these dogs that Drew hunts with or Axel or dogs that you're used to. It ain't the same. Well, like, Vandemore's a prime example, right? Rough. I have one of Ruff's grandkids. Yeah. Um, Great dog. But he said in one of the snowstorm videos, or I think it was one of those, but there is a difference between a really good hunting dog and a guide dog. Big difference. Guide dogs, they're, they're not all perfect. No dogs are perfect. But the deal is they're consistent. I know what my dog's going to do every time. And then you put that variable in there of a new dog that then people are walking around, walking them out to the birds and stuff. Well, that burns up five Throwing flocks of rocks geese. And burns up five flocks of geese. And then at the end of the day, they're like, they're mad at you. well, God, we, you know, and it was a little bre- slow today. And it was like, well, what about the 25 minutes we spent picking up five geese? Yeah, because you wanted to bring your dog. Honey break, the dogs can't see the birds fall. Right. They're so hidden. they got a mark. So it's all, mar- they're all dead, all, but they're all blinds pretty yep. much. And that's the thing is that these guys don't understand that. So the next thing you know, they're th- throwing shotguns. I'm like, dude, that's $4.50. I don't care. I got to get that bird. I'm like, that's not what a dog's supposed to be like. To each their own. Right. But a breaking dog, a squealing dog, all of that stuff, get it fixed nip it in the bud and get a good trained dog because it's going to be worth its weight in gold safety-wise, performance-wise, conservation tool-wise. It's John David Stanley. Can I come hunt at Ranger Creek? Yeah. One we'll question before we leave. You've been around the block in duck calls. You've competed. You've mm-hmm. been on stage in Stuttgart. You've been in top 10 like eight times. You're runner-up. 
you know goose calls. Jargon the real deal or what? Yeah. They good. are. Very good? Very good. You heard it from John David Stanley, another episode. This is going to go down in history as something that I got educated on a lot. I like to think about this because it's stuff that we take for granted. I've been on so many guided hunts. I've guided so many hunts. I entertain on so many hunts. It's a lot that goes into it. Hone your skill set. Become the best version of a duck hunter, goose hunter, waterfowl aficionado that you can become because once it comes together and all those pieces of that puzzle fit together and you see that masterpiece you're throwing your oils at that that blank canvas it's unbelievable when the scout and the decoys and the concealment and the dog and the calling and the fetching and the ripples on the water and the sunshine and the the high five and the camaraderie and the cutting up and the boat rides and then you got the breasting or the plucking and the recipes the campfire the guitar pick and the highball it's it's an amazing lifestyle. Let's become the best we can. Keep safety in mind all of the time. And look into guiding. Look into it if you want to get into it. It's a great way to become a better hunter because you have to go all in to be successful at it. Holler at JD, at JD underscore Stanley. Dot. JD dot Stanley on Instagram. Book a hunt with him at Rager Creek Goose. Him and Justin got it going on down there. And I'm telling you, you want to kill specs, you want to kill lessers, you want some widgeon, get down to Texas. Everything's bigger in Texas, especially John David's heart. He's going to teach you everything you need to know about duck and goose hunting. I'm Chad Belling, the Foul Life Dickies Workwear Series of Podcasts. We wanted to talk about working as a guide, fishing guide on the Kenai in Anchorage, Alaska, around Anchorage, Alaska, all the way down to Texas at Ranger Creek Goose. John David is a guide for life. He's one of the best there is. Appreciate y'all listening. Thank you, Dickies, for believing in the culture of the American outdoorsman, hunter, fisher, gatherer, provider. We truly appreciate all of the workers out there. If you're a janitor at the local high school and you're making sure our kids have a clean, safe place to go to school, if you're a bus driver in city transit, a school bus driver, a jet pilot, a surgeon, an ophthalmologist, I don't care what you do for a living. Do it with pride and passion and love. Become the best you can be at it. It's going to be a life well served. Chad Belding, the Foul Life Podcast, Dickie's Workwear Series. Talk to you all soon. (laughs) 